analysis, and reaction. Here is NL News Director Shane Woodford on 610 AM. Good morning, an overcast gray day here in Kamloops, and apparently the snow is on the way. Uh, good show in front of you today. We're going to start off talking all things education. Uh, Kamloops School Board uh, Chair uh, Kathleen Carpuck is currently in the studio across from me. We'll also talk to Todd Stone a little later in the show, who's teasing some new information on the BC Lottery Headquarters situation. And then we'll touch base with all things Trump investigation. Robert Mueller uh, look into that uh, with TRU lawyer and lecturer Jeffrey Meyer. So all that ahead. But first, Kathleen Carpuck. Buck joins me in studio. Kathleen, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Right, good to see you. How was yeah. your holidays? Good, yeah? They were nice, yeah. yeah. Good break. Good time off, but now the work begins again. The work <laughs> begins again and we're hitting the ground running. Yeah. yeah, okay, so let's talk about some things. Uh, first off, you've got, uh, we're all aware of the situation here, the capital needs, you've got some, you know, some serious classroom space deficiencies in the district, old aging buildings, haven't had a new one in a really, really, really long time. Uh, so we're, we're stuck in this thing between whatever pending capital investment comes down the line and whenever that is announced uh, and trying to kind of make do in this in this gray area in this in between time so um west side and west wold are two interesting situations so uh you could potentially open up west side so you had a meeting last night where are we in that process as far as figuring out what we're doing there so uh last night the uh board uh passed a motion to begin the consultation process around reopening west side elementary mm. and so we've set a date for community consultation uh, for January 30th, that will be happening at David Thompson Elementary at 7 o'clock. And we will be opening up a, we'll have a spot on our website where people can submit comments and feedback. That will be open. We'll be taking feedback until February 28th. And then we'll be making a decision around Westside sometime in March. Okay. What condition is Westside in now? Because it's been closed for a couple of years. So is it going to need some serious work or do you have any idea yet what the scope is there? If we go down this road? Uh, we're looking at somewhere around $1.2 million in renovations and upgrades to mm. get it back ship shape. And that's things like flooring, putting in furniture, bringing in books, equipment, you know, new gym equipment, uh, making sure we've got desks and chairs and that type of thing. Okay. So would that mean new teachers potentially too to cover off the classroom space or no? No, that wouldn't be new teachers because we already have those students are in the district. They have teachers already. So what it would mean is a shifting of teachers. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Do you expect that parents are going to come into this meeting? Because it was funny, uh, last time I was with NL, of course, I covered all the school closure meetings, which were something else, but you're having one about possibly opening one up. Do you anticipate anyone's going to go to that meeting and be like, uh, boo, no, I don't want to do this. I'm so mad about you opening up a school. There's that potential. Um, that means that there could be some increased traffic in that neighborhood. Some people may be upset about that. It means that some students may be going to a different school than their best friend. Mm. And some people may be upset about that. So yeah, it's it's definitely there's going to be a lot of uncertainty around that, and we understand that some people are not going to be terribly happy necessarily about outcomes, mm. and we're going to try to manage that and work with people so that we we're always doing this with the with the idea of having the best outcomes for our students in mind. Right. Okay. So now, if we open us, what what would that do as far as relieving pressure? Where are we looking at relieving pressure from again? So what that will do is it will relieve the pressure at David Thompson okay. because right now there's just the one school. Just the okay. one school. There's a portable at David Thompson. We're talking about putting in another one there. Mm. Uh, by reopening West Side, we none of those students at Westside or David Thompson would have to be in portables at time. We would have room for expansion because we know that the community of Westside is growing and so we'll have room for expansion without having to worry about portables at those two schools. Okay. Ideally, is this the best use of the district's money? I mean, 1.2 million is a sizable chunk of change. Is, is that where this money is best used right now? I think it is, because if we look long term, every time we have to buy a portable, we're talking a couple hundred thousand dollars. Nice. We're talking about uh, not the best learning conditions, because now we've got overcrowded, overcrowded washrooms in schools. Right. Um, it's more challenging for maintenance, because portables don't last as long as schools, so we have higher maintenance costs. So by reopening the school long term, it will actually save us money in 
that the portable that we currently have at David Thompson, we can put somewhere else and that saves us money. The portable that we were going to buy for David Thompson, we don't have to buy that now. Mm. So that in itself will save us a couple hundred thousand dollars that can be put in other places. Perhaps you should group all the portables together and just call it a school. We've done... (laughs) (laughs) Just find an empty lot somewhere, just hammer them all down, 20 of them together, call it a school. That's what we've done. (laughs) That's what we've done at Sun Peaks. Yeah, yeah, I guess you have really, haven't you? Yeah, okay. Uh, So that's uh, potentially good news, I guess, depending on your outlook on Westside. Westwold is a different story. Uh, Looking at possibly closing that thing down. How's that process going to unfold? So uh, we had our community consultation at Westwold. Uh, in December. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have our comment period will be closing on the 19th of January. So until then, we're still taking feedback on our website. And if you go to our homepage, you'll see a link right on the front page of the school district website. Uh, once January 19th hits, our staff will be we're starting to write a report. They'll bring that report to the uh, school board on the 28th. And that's when we'll potentially make that decision on the fate of, of Westwold. Okay, but that will require a majority vote. It would require yeah. a majority vote, yes. How many students got currently there now? Zero. No, there's nobody there. There are no okay. students. Right. Okay. Yeah. But is there any uh, any look at sort of growth? Because we have a couple guys here who live in that general region, and their concern always is, well, if the school closes down, then A, it sort of limits that particular suburb's growth because then, you know, families might not want to go there. And then conversely, there's the complaint about the impact on the property valuations in the area as well. That's why we're having the consultation process is we wanted to know how many kindergarten age students are coming up, how many preschool students are in that area who are thinking that they want Westwold to be their school so that we have an idea of is this a temporary blip where we have no students? Uh, will we be re- able to reopen in September knowing that we've got enough students to be able to have reasonable classes that are going to be academically sound for those students? That's what we're looking for. Uh, new year means that uh, potentially this uh, big announcement that's been teased by Education Minister Rob Fleming could happen. We don't know exactly when. One assumes it's early in the year with the budgeting process, etc. Are you hopeful there? Have you heard any word or anything else? You're just kind of waiting for something at this point still. We're very, very hopeful. Um, We're really hoping to have good news around Valley View. We haven't heard anything Mm -hmm. uh, in the new year, so we're sort of the same spot everybody else is waiting to hear. Um, You sent two business cases for Valley View, if I'm not mistaken, one for an expansion and one for a complete rebuild. Any idea what the government could announce there? Would they give you an indication or this would just be, okay, you're going to receive whatever news when you get it? We'll get the news the same time as everybody else. (laughs) We might get a half hour heads up, but uh, I think we'll probably get the news the same time as everyone else. Uh, Interesting. That would have certain implications depending on what they do, I would imagine. Uh, Okay, uh, we don't want to to get get you out of here without uh, talking about schools of choice and kindergarten registration, something that is uh, top of mind for myself because I've got a little guy who's approaching that age and his happens to be one of those December babies where you have the constant arguments. Do you put them in early? Do you put them in late? Uh, So what's going on in that? Because we're talking about registration for the new school year in the September. Yes. So uh, we're having an information night around our schools of choice on January 16th. Mm -hmm. That'll be happening at the Henry Group at uh, 6.30. And that will be on French Immersion, uh, Kamloops School of the Arts, and our Bird Edwards Science and Technology School. And there'll be all sorts of information for parents around that. Um, that, again, is at 6.30 on the 16th at the Henry Group. Um, registration for schools of choice is going to happen on from January 28th to February 1st, and it, registration closes at 12 o'clock noon <laughs> on February 1st. And um, if there are more uh, students that want in and we have spaces, then we will have a lottery draw. So it's not first come, first serve. We don't want to see lineups of people because that's not going to help your chances of getting in. Um, But you do register at those schools and then uh, again, if there's more students in spaces, we'll have a lottery 
last year we were able to pretty much accommodate everyone who wanted to get in especially okay. for French immersion yeah I was going to ask you about that because my sense is we have uh, as long as our real estate activity is more or less hot which has been for a bunch of years now you're going to have students families that are going to be in there coming into the region so and they're going to come from a place in the lower mainland where and I was sharing with you just before we went to air is we we registered my little guy in New West I'm not joking we registered him when he was in the womb for a uh, French immersion school in New Westminster when we lived there. And we literally got a call just a few months ago, and he's just turned four. So it gives you an idea what's going on elsewhere around the province. But we're not quite in that situation here. We're not in that situation. So we are only accepting registration for students that will be starting this <laughs> September coming up. <laughs> Any advice on the start early, start late? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> It depends on the child. Yeah. And really it's, um, you know, as the older a child is when they start January, babies generally have statistically, especially in sports and hockey, better chance of succeeding when they're a little bit older than their peers. But uh, kids that are a little bit more advanced, sometimes they benefit from starting early too. So. Do, you, do you get feedback from certain <laughs> communities? Like, for example, we're sort of in South Kamloops over here. So the local elementary school would be a school of choice of French immersion, Lloyd George. Do you get concern from parents who are like, listen, I've got an elementary school here, but my kid can't go to it because I don't want a school of choice. So I've got to bust them over to some other school or drive them over here. Is that a concern in Kamloops? So for um, that... Catchment area school is Beatty Elementary yeah. up on McGill. Yeah. So there is still the neighborhood school. It is a little bit farther away, but we do have the bus service that runs from that uh, North Cam area. Or, sorry, South Cam. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the wrong shore. Um, we do have some bus service that does pick up kids and take them up the hill so that they don't have to worry about Columbia Street. It's okay. I woke up on the wrong shore once, too, so it happens to all of us. <laughs> Kathleen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Happy New Year. Good to see you. Look forward to chatting again fairly regularly over the uh, over this coming year. Yeah, it was uh, good to be with you, and uh, congratulations to Jim on his retirement. Yeah. I hope he has fun and enjoys himself. I'm sure he will. he got lots more Britney Spears concerts ahead of him, so... <laughs> He's a fan. I'm not joking. Uh, we'll take a quick break here on the Woodford Show on Radio NL. On the other side, Todd Stone joins us. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Shane Woodford on Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show uh, with yours truly guest hosting. Guest hosting. I'm guest hosting my own show. God, I need a coffee. Uh, Todd Stone, how are you doing? Todd Stone joins I, me. I, uh, I think this is actually wow. your show, Shane. I believe it's and, my and show. congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I appreciate that. Boy, vey. Okay. <laughs> actually, when I walked in here thinking I was going on your show, I yeah. thought, wow, it's Friday. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, that's no, right. No, yeah, it's yeah, Tuesday. Yeah, it's Tuesday. Yeah. I'm so used to guest hosting on this spot that I just, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, hey, uh, I'm flying a little blind here. But uh, you raised an issue uh, with uh, Jim Harrison last week, basically saying both you and Pete said that uh, you're hearing that there's some kind of an issue going on percolating over the BCLC headquarters. Last time we touched base with that issue was about June, July-ish. I believe BCLC had, had chosen a final proponent. Uh, they were getting ready to go to Treasury Board for a yes, no, maybe so. Dave Eby told us, told everybody in the city, yeah, we're full steam ahead on this thing. Uh, when you raised the issues last week, I called the Attorney General's office to get a comment from Mr. Eby and was told that he's not going to comment and uh, as I talked to you about a little while ago the tone of the call was very odd it's very abrupt very okay uh, we'll have something on this when we can so obviously I believe my spidey sense says there's something going on here but you uh, apparently have some more information you've dug a little deeper what's going on <clears throat> well uh, your your synopsis there is bang on uh, as you as you will recall uh, 18 months ago when the NDP assumed uh, assumed power uh, the, the 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 former BC Liberal government had initiated a, a process within uh, BCLC to uh, to move uh, towards the construction of a new headquarters here in Kamloops. This yeah. is uh, their their head office location, and that was predicated on a 2010 uh, a feasibility report that was done inside of BCLC that mm. indicated that about 20 million dollars at minimum of work was needed to uh, to be done on the existing facility. Remember, it was an old Woodward's building right. that was built yeah. back in 1964, yeah. uh, and uh, there was a, a a whole bunch of issues: electrical, mechanical, structural, uh, safety issues that needed to be addressed 
And so BCLC came to the government of the day, our government, and said, look, uh, does it make more sense to, to, to sink 20 million plus into this build uh, or or should we uh, should we look at doing something a bit more creative um, on what is a, a, a key entry point into the into the downtown uh, core of Kamloops uh, on the western uh, end of the downtown yeah. there? And so uh, we authorized moving forward with uh, putting putting an RFP out there, looking at different options. And uh, uh, again, this was also to accommodate significant employment growth that was uh, projected uh, to take place here in Kamloops to go from about 450 positions today to about 700. Right. And uh, their computer infrastructure uh, and, over uh, there, which is not mm-hmm. ideal. Well, but it's state of the art. It's very, very uh, costly uh, yeah. infrastructure that they have over there. Yeah. And one of the key issues in terms of deficiencies it's was uh, what was the uh, what was the electrical uh, yeah. uh, infrastructure. So not good. Uh, we uh, we authorized moving forward with that. We said we were committed to this. David Eby, uh, to 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 be fair, uh, did say in the budget estimates uh, when questioned by Peter Millibar last February, mm-hmm. uh, nothing to worry about here. Yeah. Uh, the project is on track. We're moving forward. Uh, just completely completing some due diligence. And then I believe with you uh, in July, as you pointed out, uh, yep, of last year, go. all systems go. Yep. Um, so what are you hearing now? Well, we're uh, over the last uh, week or so since we raised this with Jim, uh, both Peter and I have had a very significant number of phone calls uh, and drop-ins in our office from people who work at BCLC. Mm. Now, I'm not talking about the executives, obviously, but yeah. but lots of rank-and-file folks inside the corporation who, who are coming to us and saying, what the heck is going on? Because we're hearing that the... Uh, that the, the, the construction of this new building is dead and that at best um, what the government might be trying to tee up at, uh, at, at, as of today uh, is a few million dollars worth of um, uh, of kind of patchwork uh, oh. repairs uh, on the existing facility. Now this stymies a couple things. One, uh, it doesn't at all address the, um, the underlying uh, deficiencies in that existing building, which yeah. is a lot about safety as I've spoken about yeah. already. But secondly, it doesn't allow for the growth uh, that is projected um, to have taken place here with these high-paying jobs in this headquarters. Um, and I think it speaks to a greater concern that we should all have, and that is, uh, are we about to see a, a steady, uh, a slow but but steady migration of employment back to the lower mainland office of BC Lotteries? Uh, or is the corporation and this government actually committed to, uh, to Kamloops being the headquarters uh, in more than just name? So... Okay, we and again we don't have confirmation, but again my conversation with the minister, the attorney general's ministry, leads me to believe something's cooking here. Uh, if it is the case that we have we have killed a fifty million dollar brand new building, which was fairly long in the process, like if you're heading to treasury board, that's fairly well down the line. I mean, you've been in government. Why would why would a government of the day start taking projects like this and potentially taking them off the table? Any idea, you know, what might be going on behind the scenes? Uh, uh, it's pure speculation. Uh, it, you know, I, I I could sit here and and, and come. <laughs> with any number of, of you know raw, plausible explanations, uh, why is the Trans Canada Highway projects east of Kamloops uh, two plus uh, years uh, behind schedule now when we had 199 million dollars secured for uh, for the the next uh, three sections yeah. of, of that project? But safe uh, to say, when you see big projects <coughs> dropping off potentially, it well, looks like something's cooking. Look, is uh, that a concern? when I when I was first elected in 2013, I was appalled when I toured BCLC's office and I, I because I learned a few things. One, uh, there was only a handful of uh, of, of executives that were actually based in Kamloops. Uh, the, the general rule of thumb uh, that was uh, that was understood inside BCLC was the majority of new employees were hired in the Vancouver office, not the Kamloops office. Mm-hmm. And the CEO's office, the CEO of the day, not not the current CEO, who's, I think, doing a fantastic job, Jim Lightbody, yeah. but the previous CEO, his office here in Kamloops was a storage closet. <laughs> so we set about to correct all that, and I think we were generally successful. We yeah. ended up with three or four board members. Bud Smith, a local Kamloopsian, was, a, you know, was unabashedly proud of the city was the chair for five or six years. We uh, we reversed the trend of employment uh, flowing to Vancouver in the other direction. We saw a significant increase in employment here. And we uh, we, uh, we, we, uh, we committed to moving forward with this new build uh, of, uh, of this new uh, new uh, headquarters here in Kamloops. Where are we today? Um, the board was expanded from seven positions to nine positions. Uh, there are now only, there's only one Kamloopsian on that board uh, who was appointed uh, on December 31st last 
last last year yeah. for a ten month term, which is really odd. Uh, I, I, you know, I my time in government, I didn't recall seeing ten month terms. You often see a one year term as yeah. a start, and then it goes to two. Mm. But ten months was bizarre. So you got one Cam in on the board. The chair is not from this area. All the other board members are from the Lower Mainland, Bowen Island, Victoria. So you're uh, genuinely concerned. I am very, I'm camp. very, very concerned uh, oh. about the direction. We used to have uh, the CEO and his team out in the community in a very public way with the media and with with the community, uh, giving re- regular does do that. giving regular updates. Yep. Uh, well, uh, when was the last time we had a, a, a significant update over, mm. over the last eighteen months on yeah, you know the government's about, intentions? About August, uh, September. Well, uh, it's about <laughs> it's about time. I, I my, my 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 call to action here uh, is uh, is that David Eby and the NDP have got to stand up soon and have got to be crystal clear uh, that they remain committed uh, to Kamloops being the head headquarters uh, for BCLC, not just in name only, but uh, but in terms of the employment focus here, in terms of the board representation uh, on 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 the, the corporation, and uh, they need to uh, to sign off on uh, this this new build uh, of a, of a new headquarters uh, to facilitate that uh, that growth and employment of another two to three hundred uh, positions uh, here in Kamloops. Okay, we're a little late, but just real quick, have you reached out to the Attorney General's Ministry at all to kind of back channel anything or no? We're 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 trying everything that we can here okay. to try and, and really get to the bottom of it. Being in opposition, that's uh, uh, of I have I have I have worse access than you do now, uh, uh, Shane. And I think <laughs> I your got, access is pretty good. I got news for you, Todd. You've always <laughs> had worse access than I do. <laughs> well, anyway, it's our it's our job to to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And the best thing that could happen is for David Eby to come on your show or or in, in some other fashion and be really crystal clear any day now and put everybody's concerns to ease and yeah. say no, there's nothing to worry about. We are committed to Kamloops. We're committed to a new build. We're committed to the employee base here, and we're going to beef up the board representation so there's not just one uh, Kamloopsian on on the board of this Crown Corporation, which is supposedly based here in Kamloops. Yeah. Uh, growing concern. We will reach out to the Attorney General again and try and get some clarification. Uh, Todd, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Shane. Todd Stone, Kamloops South MLA. Serious concerns about the BCLC project. We'll have more on the Woodford Show on Radio NL right after this. Local News Now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Good morning and welcome back to the Woodford Show. Thank you for tuning in. It's time to turn our attention to getting caught up on the latest between the Robert Mueller investigation into the Trump campaign and any possible collusion with Russia in the last presidential election run. I talked fairly frequently last year with Jeffrey Myers, lawyer lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University, and this will be our first chat of this new year. And after a few weeks off, there's a a lot to talk about, I think it's fair to say. Uh, Jeffrey Myers, welcome to the program. Happy New Year, Shane. I'm really glad to be back on with you. Start 2019. Yeah, no kidding. And it's good to hear your voice as well. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> it has uh, always been a very packed and interesting uh, dynamic every time you and I talk, and that was weekly. We've let a few weeks slip by here. So um, why don't we start off the top by just kind of doing a quick summary of where we're at as far as, far as uh, the Bob Mueller investigation and Donald Trump and all of that before we kind of forge into some of the uh, jaw-dropping headlines of the day here. Yeah, well, I think that's a good idea. I think it's worth reminding ourselves, right, that the the Mueller investigation was sort of designed in the first place to ask sort of two very broad questions. And the reason it's kind of an interesting time to check in now at the close of 2018 and the close of 2019 is that those um, broad questions, we seem to now be seeing the outlines of an answer of a case here against the president. And, and, and it's sort of worth going back and saying, well, just what was what, what what was the inquiry in the first place? Because you can lose the forest for the trees otherwise, right? So the first question is right: Did the Trump campaign coordinate with Russia in some way, uh, and did Trump himself is really the second and add-on question obstruct the investigation uh, into this type of coordination? Again, usually loosely we use the word collusion, which is an illegal term, just to describe the family of crimes which are involved here, most of which take the shape of either uh, forms of conspiracy to defraud the United States or forms of the crime of obstruction of justice, right? So, and now we know um, separately in the Southern District of New York uh, that there's that uh, Mr. Mr. Trump has been implicated as an unnamed co-conspirator of his former lawyer Michael Cohen, right? Who pled guilty uh, to campaign finance fraud for undeclared hush money payments to quash 
uh, sex scandals during the campaign. But the broader, so that's one piece of it, and there's a few other little investigations, and I know you're eager to speak about um, some of the ones that are being investigated by Congress and the change dynamic there in particular now that Democrats have taken over. Um, but remember, really, it's so important as we look at it because it, the events come one after the other after the other, and it's very easy to lose your footing, right? But what's happened already, right? The first thing that happened all the way back in December of 2017, right, was that Michael Flynn, uh, who was a former, very briefly um, uh, on the um, National Security Council and was uh, active as a former military man in, um, in Mr. Trump's uh, campaign, he pled guilty to lying to the FBI, which is a federal offense, uh, uh, for contacts with Russia during the transition, right? We know about uh, Michael Cohen's uh, guilty pleas on the hush money, but that's uh, very, uh, very um, recent. It goes all the way back to 2017. We know we're going to see Michael Cohen again uh, shortly, and he's going to talk uh, publicly to Congress and be asked about um, uh, and talk about his guilty plea in connection with lying to Congress about the involvement in the Trump Tower in Moscow, building that, the question of the Trump Tower. What role does that play in all this? Paul Manafort, right, who dominated the headlines last year, has been, of course, charged with breaching a cooperation deal by lying uh, to investigators after his conviction uh, for bank fraud um, in connection with his murky relationship with, um, with, with the Russian interest in the Ukraine. Rick Gates... Uh, his former deputy, that is Manafort's former deputy, uh, has uh, entered a guilty plea for conspiracy against the United States for uh, lying to guilty to investigators and is now in assisting uh, Mr. Mueller and his team. Uh, Konstantin uh, Kalimnik uh, was a Manafort aide and a Ukrainian uh, political operative with ties to Russian uh, intelligence. He's charged with witness tampering. Uh, in connection uh, with his work as a lobbyist uh, for the Ukraine's ousted uh, former pro-Russian government to which Manafort's been decisively linked. You remember George Papadopoulos, right, the campaign advisor, advisor sentenced to prison for 14 days after a guilty plea in fall of 2017 for lying to the FBI regarding taking meetings, seeking dirt on Clinton uh, at the behest of the um, of the Trump campaign, right? Uh, we'll talk about um, some of the figures that some of the resonances from that, Roger Stone and some of these other characters uh, that are still continuing to come at us. Samuel Patton, a U.S. business partner of um, a Russian national accused by Mueller's Office of Ties to Russian Intelligence, who pled guilty in August of 2019 for unregistered uh, lobbying for pro-Kremlin uh, pro uh, political interests in the Ukraine, again, in cooperation with uh, the Mueller investigation against Manafort. And again, uh, Richard Pinedo uh, pled guilty in February to identity fraud for assisting Russian conspirators to launder money and purchase Facebook ads during the 2016 election. Twelve intelligence officers indicted by a federal grand jury in the summer of 2018 and charged with hacking the Democratic National Committee computer network in 2016. An additional 13 Russians and three other Russian entities have been indicted by Mueller almost a year ago and accused of tampering with the 2016 election. Of course, they won't show up on, so on U.S. soil to be arrested, nor is there any kind of extradition agreement, but symbolically very meaningful. Alexander Vanderswan, Dutch-American lawyer who worked with Manafort and Gates, pled guilty in February to lying to the Mueller investigation. Uh, uh, Maria Butina, charged uh, in July with illegally acting as a Russian agent in the U.S. by the Department of Justice and has now pled uh, guilty to working with senior Russian officials to infiltrate influential interest groups like the NRA in the run-up to the 2016 election. And then there's, of course, questions about future targets such as Donald Trump Jr. and Gerald Kushner, uh, all of whom were involved in that infamous meeting uh, in Trump Tower during the election with uh, Natalia Velichnikaya, I think I hope I said that right, the Kremlin link lawyer in this, uh, and along with Rob Goldstone and Emin Agalarov, who's a Russian-connected oligarch with the Trump Foundation, around dirt on uh, Hillary Clinton in the election. So again, a bigger, even a bigger question, of course, which floats above it all and people should be asking, perhaps aren't asking enough. What about Mike Pence, right? It, it, what's Mike Pence's involvement? He was key during the campaign as well. If Congress seeks to impeach Donald Trump, they should also take a close look at Pence to see if they can impeach him as well. The result of that would be that Nancy Pelosi would become the president of the United States in accordance with uh, the Article 2 uh, secession clause of the United States Constitution and with the Presidential Secession Act adopted in 1947 and it, uh, revised in 2006, she'd be third in line 
uh, after her would be uh, the president pro tempore of the Senate, which is Iowa's Chuck Grassley, of course, a Republican. But you can see how working down the line of secession and addressing um, Mike Pence would be for an aggressive Congress, and there's no reason to believe this necessarily will be the case. Uh, but some of the younger, more um, uh, strident Congress uh, members, some of the newly elected ones and Democrats may wish to pursue this kind of strategy mm. and wouldn't necessarily work. But yeah. those are the things that are operating in sort of the background. I haven't talked about the scandals of the day or the news headlines or the recent developments or anything. I've just recapped as best I can yeah. sort of the main personalities and the goings-on of the last two years and, and, and sort of suggested to you that we're reaching a kind of precipice for all Okay. Um, let's, let's get to the headlines of the day because there's been some interesting stuff and I got a list of other things to talk to you about here. Um, but, uh, uh top of mind this morning and, and, uh, this week have been, uh, this thing we learned from both the Washington Post and New York mm-hmm. Times that back in May of 2017, the FBI opened up a counterintelligence investigation to whether the president himself was secretly working with or was somehow co-opted by Russia. Uh, this was followed, that was from New York Times. This was followed by a Washington Post report kind of detailing the extreme extraordinary lengths that President Trump went to to kind of keep his communications secret with Vladimir Putin on uh, at least, let's see here, one, two, three different occasions uh, where there were sort of mano a mano talks with just a translator present and and people told to rip up notes and and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, off the top, this might be sort of sensational and go, wow, that's really, 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 you know, incriminating stuff. But what do you think? Mm. Well, I mean, I don't think, look, I think both the Washington Post and the New York Times are despised by Mr. Trump for for a reason, um, because they've been doing, and they're the most well-resourced and, and you know, um, among the traditional sort of newspaper media is the ones with the deepest roots as, as Washington reporters. And they're doing a really good job, I think, on the whole of exposing and tracking um, what is a lot of moving pieces and what, and, you know, what is effectively, I'm talking about the Mueller investigation, is a locked box, right? So they're doing a good job. So they've got these unnamed sources. If you talk about the Washington Post, again, why does Trump attack it, attack Jeff Bezos? All this? Because he knows the Washington Post is doing this reporting, and the reporting is fact-based, strong, uh, evidence-based reporting. But who, what's that evidence, right? Well, it's, it's usually an unnamed source within uh, the White House or within the State Department. And so the, you have to trust that the Washington Post or the New York Times or whoever it is is vetting um, their sources. And, um, you know, those media outlets have gained the trust of most Americans. Um, so, tr- so the Washington Post reports, right, that Trump concealed details of face-to-face encounters with Putin, as you say, uh, from his own senior officials, uh, from the State Department and from the U.S. intelligence agencies, most of whom, if they're not sitting in as representatives normally in meetings uh, with uh, U.S. presidents and uh, uh, leaders of other countries, especially countries as important and potentially adversarial as Russia, they'd be sitting in the room or at least have transcripts to examine and then give feedback on. But in this case, it looks like Mr. Trump is reported to have gone to some length, including taking possession of interpreter notes by the State Department linguists and translators who were in the room and directing them not to discuss anything further. Not this is also this is preventing scrutiny of him by his own uh, his own staff, his own aides, but as well as kind of shutting off access to the State Department or the um, intelligence agencies. Now, of course, these reports go back to a time before um, Mr. Trump had fired a lot of the people who were kind of I think he was with holding this information from. Remember, he's the generals have all left the building, right? Uh, Rex Hillerson has left the building, and the people who have been put in their place are people who he probably wouldn't have to hide his communications as much from. So it's interesting to think at the exit of personnel you know of the of the HR McMasters and the and the and the Mad Dog Mattises and the Rex Tillersons. Uh, these are people he didn't trust. So he was trying to withhold this information, but of course it never got to the press uh, and there's this, and everything came to a head, I think, at the Helsinki G20 this summer, right? Where there was this incredible press conference, nobody had ever seen the likes of something like this, where Mr. Trump is standing next to Mr. Putin on the national um, stage, describing the quote-unquote negative impact that this, the witch hunt collusion case against him has created in the relationship between the world's two largest nuclear powers, right? Uh, and he says in that, in that, in that press conference, 
conference with Putin standing beside him, and of course, as a poker face, he's an ex-KGB guy, but I was watching the video again in anticipation of our talk today, and I did detect a smirk, so I challenge your listeners to take a look at Mr. Putin's face and see what they can read there. But Trump says he believes Putin's denial, uh, despite the assessment of his own intelligence agencies, right? He's pressed by the media there. And Putin says, uh, as to, in Putin in typical cryptic fashion, on his side of the podium replies, as to who is to be believed, trust no one. Where did you get your idea that President Trump trusts me or I trust him? Can you name a single fact that would definitively prove collusion? And then Trump says, well, President Putin says it's not Russia. I don't see any reason it would be. I have confidence in both parties. Then he goes on to ask what happened to Hillary's emails. We can't get them. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And the whole world is watching this and is astounded, picking their jaws up off the ground. Right. Um, and then we say, and then alongside this, this new other piece of news that you're describing is the fact that there's also this published report, this time in the New York Times, which says an unnamed source from inside the Justice Department going all the way back to Comey's firing in the days right after Comey before um, before Comey's firing and after Comey's firing before the appointment of Mueller, where uh, folks in federal law enforcement were looking into uh, Trump's behavior and that they were openly discussing whether to open an investigation into whether or not Mr. Trump was working on behalf of Russian interests. Again, you're relying on the New York Times reporting here, and it's an unnamed source from inside the Justice Department. Based on the history of the New York Times, uh, as a good faith reporter, I think you can uh, give serious credence um, to this story. Okay, so here, just before we move on to some other angles, I'm just kind of curious, and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but do these stories in any way, shape, or form sort of tie over to the Mueller investigation or provide some fodder there, or is this, would this be things that he would already sort of be chipping away at? Well, I think these are, what this is is that the media has been able to sort of look at the indictments, look at the guilty pleas. That's the publicly available information out of the Mueller investigation and use that along with its very own, you know, well-developed investigations and its collaboration, of course, with uh, independent investigations going on in Congress or its discussions with, Cong- with uh, you know, exercise of oversight in Congress as well as, um, you know, um, the Southern District of New York, for example, covering all this, bringing the pieces together is able to, and, you know, again, combining with what their sources are saying to give you a pretty good picture of what's happening. And all of this is so crucial. It's so important, Shane, because we're now at the stage where Mueller's investigation, you know, he's going to come to a close. There's going to be a report, and that report is going to go to the who, but the Attorney General of the United States. Will that be Matthew Whitaker, the current acting Attorney General of the United States, who the, the Department of Justice advised on ethics grounds should stand aside uh, for this matter? And there's some question as to whether he's a legal appointment at all, or will it be uh, Mr. Barr, a former Bush, uh, H.W. Bush Attorney General, who's now the nomination uh, to replace Mr. Sessions, who was ousted over this issue and for his recusal on it. And then there's the question of whether um, Mr. Rosenstein, who's been overseeing matters before Mr. Whitaker came on board and after Sessions' recusal, also a target of Trump's ire, is he um, you know, going to be deciding on this? And depending on that, you know, we don't know how public the report is going to be, right? And so, of course, Congress now is controlled by the Democrats, so they, they will have the subpoena power. They could try to subpoena uh, the report if the AG, whoever that may be, whether it's Whitaker or Barr, um, just tries to block um, its public um, its public release, right? So that's the high drama that's working out here again against yeah. the backdrop now of the new attorney general coming in. Now, uh, Mr. Barr, this new attorney general you're referring to, uh, he's making some headlines uh, recently saying, hey, listen, you know, if I get the job, again, he's going through the nomination process, so it's not guaranteed at this point, but if I get the job, I'm going to protect Mr. Mueller and I'm going to make his investigation public. But uh, I do note that this seems to be at odds with some of his previous behavior. And as far as making the investigation or the Mueller report public, there seems to be some, some wiggle room about what that exactly means. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. So on the question of, you know, who is Mr. Barr and, and what's going on here? I mean, he, he was, a you know, he's been, he's already, he was one of the youngest attorney generals actually ever appointed when he worked for George H.W. Bush. You know, and he, but it's, it's specu- I think it's reasonable that, you know, that, that the commentary which has suggested that, you know, he, he kind of auditioned for this job by going out on the morning shows, which he knows Mr. Trump watches, right, and sort of making a case against the legitimacy of the uh, Mueller investigation and sort of a, a very strong case for 
presidential privilege and presidential immunity. Uh, and, you know, in fact, Whitaker had done the same thing um, before and that he had gotten the interim appointment and now the permanent appointment is for Barr. So there's a question, you know, in both cases, are these people, have they formed an opinion um, that the Mueller investigation is illegitimate before going into this position and effectively auditioned for the part with Mr. Trump by showing themselves to be brazenly partisan and ideological uh, in the way that Mr. Trump sort of blamed Sessions for not being. Um, and so, again, there's a, little, a lot of questions hanging over Mr. Whitaker's heads around that, and it was Rose eyebrows when he didn't get himself off of this and leave Mr. Rosenstein on it for the interim period. Now that Mr. Barr, of course, as you say, has been given the, um, you know, the nod by Mr. Trump for the permanent spot, he has sort of gone out of his way, and he has to do this to satisfy, um, you know, Senate, right, that he, to, to be confirmable that, you know, he's not made up his mind on all these things, and he's going to discharge his duties and protect the Mueller um, investigation. I mean, you'll, it's not unlike when, you know, you've seen some of Mr. Trump's appointment, or some of his appointments to the, or nominations to the Supreme Court, right, whether it's Neil Gorsuch or Brett Kavanaugh, right, they go before, um, you know, the Senate, and they have to at least convince Democratic senators and some moderate Republican senators that they're not totally in the bag on all of these things. Uh, and then it further divides the country when there's a realization that it's, it's quite clear that some of these people have positions very sympathetic to Mr. Trump, and it really undermines democracy and the rule of law. Yeah. And uh, on that note, I mean, Barr did author a memo to senior Justice Department officials uh, basically calling Trump's interactions with James Comey that, that they would not constitute obstruction of justice. And I believe he called the Mueller probe, uh, obstruction probe, fatally misconceived as well in the yeah, past. Yeah, so for every Democrat in, uh, will vote to not to confirm. And then the question will be because of that, rightfully so, they'll ask him about it, but there's nothing. I mean, he sent a memo. It's uh, completely public. It was, it was obviously done with a kind, in a kind of calculated fashion. But so then the question will be, you know, once again, come down to the centrist republic, to the sort of center, you know, the people like, um, you know, um, Collins and Murkowski, you know, Jeff Flake's not there anymore, but there are other people, you know, Bob, Bob Corker, I guess, isn't there anymore, but there's some new moderates to take the place, and we'll have to see how it pans out, but Senate's actually stronger for the Republicans now, so he's, he's going to get, I'm thinking aloud on the radio, it's terrible, he's going to get, uh, he's going to get confirmed very likely. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a shockingly kind of, um, you know, bare partisan, um, you know, revelation, I think for the American public and for the world. Yeah, I, I, I would tend to agree. By the way, I do some of my best thinking on the radio. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some other stuff to kind of discuss. Uh, one of them is, as we get this new look, um, House of Representatives as the Democrats take control. Uh, I note House Intelligence Committee Chair Adam Schiff, uh, mm. Democrat out of California, uh, said over the weekend he wants to work with Special Counsel Robert Mueller to determine whether any witnesses who've testified before his panel have committed perjury. I, don't, I mean, from a legal perspective, I'm not sure if that sort of compounds some existing problems for some people or, or what the deal is with that. Well, it's relevant because, you know, like for starters, okay, so a lot of these questions about, I mean, a lot of the, even the convictions, right, and the, the charges around the Mueller investigation have been around lying to the FBI, lying to Congress is also an offense, um, and lying to a court, you know, is what you, is, is obviously an offense as well. And these are serious offenses, um, um, and, you're regard, and, they, and they function regardless of what the outcome on the underlying crime is. So, um, and they tend to, um, in, the, in themselves, they're not only serious offenses for the people who commit them, but they also tend to provide, you know, evidence of conspiracy, right? Um, so they're, and, and so they're very, these are very um, significant questions. And the more uh, Congress is able to collaborate with, rather than effectively, um, you know, stonewall or act in its own independent lane designed to shut down the investigation, which was happening with the Republican-controlled Congress and those committees by Republicans, it does, it, if they're collaborating and working rather than at cross purposes together, it does again tend to militate in favor of more and better information uh, for the American public, which is good news uh, for everybody. Uh, one of the other things, too, that may have some implications on the, on the Mueller front is the House Intelligence Committee recently voted unanimously to transmit uh, what some of the media are speculating could be the testimony of Roger Stone, of course, that longtime Trump advisor and uh, one, of the, one of the big mechanics behind his presidential uh, win, uh, to special counsel Robert Mueller's office, which may, you know, we're sort of in the speculation realm here, but uh, this may indicate perhaps an indictment coming down the line. 
Well, you know, there could be. I mean, the question really now is, are there going to be more indictments coming along, and what were they going to look at? There's been a lot of speculation about Roger Stone, of course, even more fevered speculation, I think, around a figure like Donald Trump Jr. or um, Jared Kushner, wow, really getting close to home, really putting the squeeze on Mr. Trump. You know, I'm not sure if those indictments are coming or not, or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that they are. I don't really know if there's going to be... I think there's enough evidence, frankly, and I think for some time, I mean, a lot of these, a lot of the crimes which we're talking about here, you know, including the most high-profile um, uh, points where um, Mr. Trump could be said to have obstructed justice, have, be, have, a cleared, have occurred in plain view of the public uh, and in the media and based on reported events that have been, um, you know, not even by confidential sources, right? And then if you look, if you connect the um, the evidence, again, from what's publicly available based on good uh, media work, as well as the guilty pleas and the indictments, uh, in, unless you even just focusing on the guilty pleas and the convictions uh, brought about by Mueller Inquiry and in the Southern District of New York, you see the building blocks of what looks to be a very, very uh, unusual um, and suspect set of transactions, which I think are sufficient to uh, base already on their own um, you know, uh, impeachment proceedings and then for the Senate to have a trial on. But we're obviously going to wait until, and properly so, the Mueller investigation is completely concluded with this report. But I don't think people should feel it's false for people to look at what's already there and say, oh, it's just not enough, it's not enough, there's no smoking gun. There's, there's so much evidence there, and in normal circumstances, a lawyer would view this is certainly adequate to you know, run a trial with a high likelihood of success. So it's just a matter of more and better and stronger. And, um, but a lot of these things are out in the public eye. I mean, Mr. Trump is not a brilliant criminal. I mean, he's not, he's not disguised much of what he's done. His comments, his publicly available comments, his tweets are enormously um, incriminating, particularly on the question of obstruction of justice, which is normally the type of crime which removes a president from office. Uh, can we infer, I mean, on the issue of whether any more indictments are coming, we know the grand jury that's sort of in charge of, uh, has been extended for some six months. Would mm. that not indicate perhaps that there's more activity? No, it, could. it could. I mean, the question is, are there going to be, it's not really, there's likely to be some more indictments potentially, but really are they high profile ones of the sort that, you know, people are anticipating, you know, kind of being, um, you know, the silver bullet. And I, I just I just caution folks against that kind of thinking because of course of course we don't know what's coming and there could be more dramatic things, but again that's why I started off Shane in terms of our discussion today with sort of outlining to you what's already happened. I mean think about who is Paul Manafort and you know who who is you know who is who is Mr. Cohen right? These are this is a personal lawyer of the president for twenty or thirty years, a personal fixer, uh, and then you have his uh, campaign manager during the most crucial time of the campaign in which it's very clear he had debts to um, Russian interests in the Ukraine, and that at that very same time, the policy of the Republican Party was changed at the convention when Mr. Manafort was specifically brought in to engineer the convention changed to be more favorable uh, to Russia. It's, it's just, the, it is not just circumstantial, the evidence is becoming overwhelming. So, um, that's sort of, so I think looking forward, are they going to get Donald Jr. in? Are they going to get Roger Stone? Are there going to be more indictments? Is there going to be something more? You know, we're, we're becoming inoculated to um, the reality of what we already have. I think that we're so fearful, um, you know, as thoughtful citizens of being bamboozled or propagandized by quote-unquote fake news, we can't recognize how overwhelming the real news is uh, and what the distinction is between it and the just completely unfounded, um, you know, objections on the other side. Yeah. Uh, why don't we wrap up, uh, Jeffrey, with, with just a simple question. I'll let you run away with it here. But, yeah. I mean, we've covered a lot of ground here, but uh, as we begin this new year, um, what do we look for, you know, as sort of milestones or, or next things to happen or the next shoe to drop uh, as, as we go forward in 2019 as far as the Mueller investigation of Mr. Trump, et cetera? Um, you know, I think really, like I say, the key person I think so far that, that, that that's already cooperating and is clearly going to continue cooperating more than anything is it's it's Cohen, right? I mean, that's because it's the connections between Mr. Trump's life as a business person and his and his interests, Russian business interests, and then his life as in the campaign, which Cohen kind of bridges. You have also other people like Alan Weisselberg, who was the you know the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, going back to his father, who's so thought to be working with uh, prosecutors as well. 
Um, so, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, I think what's in the future, well, there's kind of two pieces. There's the domestic side of things, and there's the foreign policy side of things. On the domestic policy side of things, obviously, government is ground to a halt in the context of this manufactured crisis over uh, immigration, right? There's no evidence to suggest that there's a uh, greater or higher instances of illegal immigration or crime by illegal immigrants or anything like that. But Mr. Trump continues to promote that as a basis to shut down the whole government, right? And so the net results over the next few months are going to be impacting on a variety of things, you know, um, including things like air travel, which are going to be of importance to everybody, including Canadians. Um, so that's the domestic front. Um, again, knock-on effects with foreign issues, obvious. Uh, on the on the foreign policy side, now that all the adults are out of the room, now that all the generals have been fired, um, all of the establishment actors have been expunged from the administration. The key actors are Mr. Trump himself, Mike Pompeo, who's the former, who's now the Secretary of State and the former uh, Kansas uh, State of Kansas Tea Party congressman, who used to be CIA director. By all accounts, he'll continue to gear. Uh, everything, including the presentation of um, advice around the wishes and desires of the president, rather than um, the objective assessments of you know government agencies. Um, so I started to be discouraging on this, but I think that's the reality. John Bolton, of course, who is a former character known from the Bush administration's um, misconceived war in Iraq, he's uh, now a key foreign policy advisor, and he'll be filling in that vacuum as well. And by all accounts, these individuals are sort of wandering around each doing their own thing, and it's not clear who's coordinating any of that. Um, and the new, um, the new White House uh, chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, of course, is, is insisted he's only there on an interim basis and was recently called out in a public meeting and humiliated and cho- told to shut the F up in front of um, leaders of both sides uh, of Congress in the, in, the, um, in the West Wing. So he's being undermined currently. So that, we're starting off in a, a note of even higher level chaos than we've seen before. I think the final point that I'd like to leave your list, listeners on is that you know a lot of the discussions, sort of end-of-the-year discussions around um, the current era have been sort of described as changes in what's sometimes called the Overton window. It's a term coined by... Uh, Joseph Overton, the idea that the window of debate around what's mainstream can constrict or open up at various pivotal moments in history. The idea being that in 2016, all of a sudden, really certain ideas which were considered beyond the pale in terms of being white supremacist or being misogynist or otherwise outside of polite conversation found their way into the political mainstream and in fact fueled uh, Trump's election victory. Now, into, and, and that the, the mainstream neoliberal sort of consensus failed to beat that back with Hillary Clinton as their nominee. And now we're working up to the 2020 election cycle in the United States. And the question is, is that Overton window still open? And is it possible to imagine a left-wing populism, which might, and, and there's certain reasons to believe that might be possible, including, you know, the openness to ideas like universal Medicare among some of the candidates for 2020 or some of the declared or undeclared candidates. The um, idea of a Green New Deal that you're hearing by some of the new members of Congress that has become very popular, higher marginal tax rates uh, for the wealthy, things that previously had been outside the norm of the U.S. public discord on the progressive side of the agenda rather than on the um, the right-wing side are maybe opening up too. So there's an opportunity to see if a new historic or another historic realignment can can emerge. There's reasons to be hopeful about those things, and there's reasons to believe that powerful forces are at play beyond the malignant ones, which we associate with the current um, administration in Washington. Jeffrey, always a pleasure. Look forward to chatting again sometime soon. That is Jeffrey Myers, who is a lawyer and lecturer up at Thompson Rivers University, and we'll be talking to him in the future again, no doubt. Thank you again to my guest on the show today, Todd Stone, Kathleen Carpuck, and as you just heard, Jeffrey Myers. We'll see you again on The Woodford Show on Radio NL tomorrow.